is full of trouble, pain and fear. The answer may sound simple when everything else crumbles, but one thing has remained through all the years. I still serve an amazing God. Stays the same And my soul 
Well, thank you, Forrest. And uh, in a moment, I want you to turn in your Bibles. But first, I want to thank the church. I had a birthday this week. And uh, yeah, it was a big one. I've been told that. And uh, it was above and beyond anything I ever expected. I'll never forget it. You gave me a wonderful, wonderful day and week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know how, what else to do than to say thank you. I'm very grateful to all of you and the way the church has treated me through the years. And um, what else do I say? Thank you. But I mean it from the bottom of my heart. God bless every one of you. I think I'll have another birthday next week. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 in your Bible, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And once you've found it, stand to your feet, please, as we read God's Word and honor it by standing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm reading three verses today. The subject is the transforming power of Christ, the transforming power of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we begin reading in verse 9. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thank you, and you may be seated. Let me give you a little background on the place to which this was written, the city of Corinth in ancient, in ancient Greece. Corinth was located on an isthmus, a narrow strip of land that uh, was in the southern part of Greece, and the isthmus ran east to west, and Corinth was situated there, and on either side of that isthmus there was a seaport. So he had a port to the south, and you had a port to the north, and the world commerce came into Corinth. It would be a major, major shipping center. It would be like New York or San Francisco in our country today, maybe even more important to the world commerce of that time. And because of that, the sailors coming in and out, international travel, even in those days, there was a high degree of immorality. It was known for its wickedness. Prostitution flourished. It was just a wicked, wicked place. In fact, they had a, sit, a saying there, if it happens in Corinth, it stays in Corinth. Well, that's the wrong town, but uh, they had something like that. They had something even maybe worse. They said, if a person was grossly immoral, openly immoral, they would say, he or she is a Corinthian. And to call somebody a Corinthian was to call them immoral a wicked person, a very licentious person. Now, Paul is writing this 
to a church that he has planted that's in that city. And if you'll go back to chapter 6 and verse 1, they have a He's dealing with various problems that are in the church there. And one of them is he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another member of the church go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? And so there's a problem in the church. People are not getting along. In fact, in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, he's talking about the divisions that they have in the, in the church there. They have such a multiplicity, such a diversity of backgrounds that these people are obviously having a hard time having any kind of unity at at all. And go down to verse 6 with me. He says, brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers, and there's a fault among you in verse 7. He says, you would rather suffer yourselves, you should be willing to be defrauded yourself, but he said, you don't. You do wrong in verse 8, and you defraud your brethren. So what they're doing is they're not getting along, and then they're suing each other. They're going to a court of law. There they're uh, making public their disunity and their, even their hatred for each other. And he says it's a terrible testimony for us. Now, this is a little bit of an aside. I'm not speaking on it today, but do you know what the New Testament really teaches? It teaches that you and I, if we have a problem with a fellow church member, that we're not to go to court against each other and sue each other in a public court because it hurts the testimony of the Lord and of the church. So, you know what that really means? Be real careful with church members you do business with. (laughs) If they're not going to treat you right and you don't have pretty good uh, uh, idea of their character, you don't want to end up in a squabble with them because the Bible says you really ought to have to go to court with them. You ought to be able, as Christian brothers and sisters, to resolve those differences. You don't hear that too often anymore. But every time Christians go to court with Christians, here brothers and sisters in Christ standing up here in the public courthouse and they're hurting the testimony of the Lord. They ought to be able to resolve that as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the backdrop of what's going on. Lots of problems in the church and a very immoral city, a culture that would be much like ours today. And now Paul goes back to the past in verse 9, and he's looking backward, and he gives us a description of the Corinthian lifestyle, a description of of the Corinthian lifestyle. And then my second point to you today will be, he comes then to the present, and he tells us the difference that Christ has made. And then thirdly, he's going to, in verse number 11, tell us about the position that we have in Christ, which is a wonderful, wonderful verse, because it, to me, is the definition of a Christian. So we have a description of the past lifestyle. We have a present, the difference that Christ makes, and we have our position in Christ that really defines what a Christian is, a wonderful, wonderful text of Scripture today that we have. Now, look with me in verse 9, and let's look back to the past, and we're going to see a description of this Corinthian lifestyle, this wicked lifestyle I've been telling you about. In verse 9, he says this, he begins what he's saying Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know what he's saying? People that commit this list of sins are not going to go to heaven. You can't go to heaven with these sins unless you find a way to have them forgiven and removed. And then he adds a warning here. He hasn't even gotten to the sins. But don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And then a warning. What is the warning? Be not deceived. Don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived, he says here. And then he gives us a catalog of sins that were common, that were flourishing there in Corinth at that time. Now, these are sins in the lives of the people who are in the church. He's writing this to the church. These are church people, church members. These are Christians. And when you read this catalog of sin, you say, well, how in the world did they get in the church? Well, the same way we did, <laughs> because we have to be forgiven too, don't we? And that's, so he's laying out what they were saved from. And in verse 9, he talks about fornication, the first one. The Greek word for fornication is pornos, P-O-R-N-O-S. It's the word that we get our word pornography from, and is translated here fornication. And what is fornication? It is sexual activity outside of marriage in any form. So it can be heterosexual activity. It can be homosexual activity. It can be awful sins like incest, involvement with prostitutes. It can even be looking at pornography. So there's a whole catalog of sexual sins that he is saying, you you were guilty of these sins. Now skip down to verse number 18 because the Bible puts a, a, a lot of emphasis on this. And here he says, flee fornication. By the way, do you know most sins in the Bible, it says that we're to stand against them, but when it comes to sexual sins, it uses an entirely different approach. Flee them. Do you remember what Joseph did when Pharaoh's wife tried to seduce him? He didn't stand there and try to fight that. He fled. In fact, she used that against him later on. But flee fornication, any sexual practice outside of marriage. And he goes on and explains why. And listen to me. Boy, we need this in America. Every sin that a man doeth is outside the body. But he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. What? Don't you know that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Ghost, who, which is in you, which you have of God and every Christian has? And underline this in your Bible, underscore these words, you are not your own if you are a Christian. You don't belong to you. Next verse, for you are bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So flee fornication because your body belongs to the Lord. You don't join it, he says, in another place with a harlot. You don't engage in immoral activity. Amen, Brother Bill. In our culture today, that's pretty radical stuff. That's out on the margins, isn't it? But that's the teaching of the Word of God. Now, you know what Jesus did when they asked him about that? 
He even raised the standard. He raised the standard. He made it even higher than the act. He said, if a man looks on a woman and he lusts after in his own heart that he has already committed adultery, at least in his mind, his motivations, and his heart have. And he raised the standard in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, if you want to jot it down there in your margin somewhere. And, and do you know what he was saying? He, don't, don't take that lightly. Don't just say, oh, that's preacher talk. Do you know what Jesus said about that? He said, if your eye offends you, if you really can't control your thoughts and, and your motivations, if you can't control yourself sexually, he said, pull your eye out and throw it away. It's better to go into heaven with one eye than it is to go to hell with two. So this is pretty serious stuff here when the Bible addresses this. And you know why I'm digging in a little bit on it? Is because it is so accepted in our culture today. There's not very many people telling you that that's wrong. The way the world looks at it is that's just a natural bodily appetite we have, like getting hungry or, or, or needing a drink of water. It's just a bodily appetite, and just go ahead. As long as you don't harm somebody else, well, then it's okay. And so we see what Paul talks about here. Don't deceive yourself, he says. These things will keep you out of heaven. That really ought to give us a pause, oughtn't it? And then he goes on, he, verse 9, he talks about adultery, which is unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. And then verse 9, he talks about homosexuality. He, he refers to effeminate and abusive. And those are the active and passive roles of homosexuals that I don't want to get in today, but he, he, he includes that in this umbrella of sin. And then he talks about idolatry, which is the worship of of anything other than God, anything that I would put above the Lord in my value system and in my priorities and in my heart would qualify to be an idol. I don't have to bow down to a little figure of some kind. Idolatry is anything in my life that I love more and value more and put more time and heart into than I do my service to the Lord and my relationship to Him. Now we go to verse 10. He continues. And he says, nor thieves. And so those who steal, those, this was the big problem here. They were defrauding each other, which is another word for taking advantage and taking other people's property from them. In verse 10, he continues, covetousness, which is uncontrolled greed, uncontrolled greed. In verse 10, he talks about drunkards, and that would, of course, be substance abusers. That would include drugs as well, legal and illegal. And then he talks about revilers, people who are abusive, who are out of control in their words and their emotions, who mistreat other people. And then in verse 10, again, he talks about extortioners and robbers, people that uh, uh, another form of theft, if you will, would be extortioners. And all these people had practiced these sins. These sins were open in Corinth. Everybody could observe them. Everybody could uh, see them. And look at the end of verse 10. In verse 9, he started the verse, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now go to the end of verse 10, and what does he say? All this list of people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He repeats it 
These are the things that can keep you out of heaven. And today, I hope if anybody is involved in any of this, that the Holy Spirit will convict you and show you your way out of those things. You know, turn back to Isaiah chapter 3. I thought of this as I was studying this passage, and I want to show you. These sins were open in Corinth. People didn't care a thing in the world about uh, telegraphing them and showing them. These were openly practiced. There was no shame involved with it. And in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, he talks to the people of Israel about this. He says, the show of their countenance. Now, your countenance is your face, your facial expression. The show of their countenance witnesseth against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. They had it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. In Corinth, these sins were open. In America today, these sins are open. And we promote these same catalog of sins. Shame is just about going out of our society today. You know, in a healthy society, people don't flaunt their sins. People don't get on television and brag about their exploits sexually. In fact, in America, we, oh, you need to be open. You're being honest. You're being authentic. That's the cool word now. You're authentic. Just get up and spill your guts and tell everybody everything you ever did. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not a sign of a healthy society. People say, well, people used to do that. They just drove it underground. You're right. You're exactly right. Because we had a very healthy moral society. And today, the sewers are just open. The sin that used to slink down the back alley now struts down the main street. And we have people that promote their evil, and they're not even ashamed of it. And that's the way it was in Corinth at this time in history. The sins of Corinth now have come to America, haven't they? I get a magazine from an organization. It's called Pure Life Ministry. I don't know how I got on their list. I just started showing up. And this is a ministry to people who are involved in what they call sexual addictions, just another form of bondage of sin. And uh, the magazine came this week as I was studying. I turned around, picked up my mail, and was leafing through it, and there's the magazine. It's mag- magazine's called Unchained. And the lead article in the magazine this month is Does anyone preach against sin anymore? Does anybody preach against sin anymore? Because if we preach against sin, we're not positive, we're not uplifting, and preacher just prophesied to us smooth things, as Isaiah said. And I'm studying, and I'm thinking, here's this long list of sins. Man, you read verse 9 and 10 there, it looks more like the background ground of a bunch of inmates in the federal prison instead of a church, doesn't it? And yet these are the sins that had been in the lives of these dear Christian people. Latest survey, according to Pure Life Ministry and Unchained Magazine, as I read the article further, 64% of Christian men view pornography once a week. 
64% of Christian men acknowledge viewing pornography. Well, you don't have to go looking for it. It comes to you. Click, click. You're there. And so, boy, you could say this passage is relevant, couldn't you? Well, thank God this is not what they were when Paul was writing. Go on with me now to the second point in verse 11. We come to the present tense. He's been looking back. And what does he say in verse 11? Such were, past tense, surround that, uh, circle that in your Bible. Such were some of you. The inference is in the past, that's what you were, but you are no longer. There's been a transformation in your life. There's been something that came along and it changed you. Some metamorphosis, some catastrophic change has occurred that changed you from a practitioner of all those kinds of things, that catalog of sin. Something has gloriously changed you. And of course, what is that? Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has changed these dear Corinthian people. Oh, they're not perfect. Some of them are going to court and defrauding each other, and there's some stuff going on in the church. But you know what? The apostle says, you're not like you were. Such were some of you, the difference that Christ has made in their life. The Nile River is one of two or three rivers in the whole world that flows from the south to the north. And I was reading about it. And it starts in the south of Egypt, and it goes all the way north. And then it curves, and it does a complete curve, and it goes back to the south for a while. Then it curves again, starts back north, curves again, and goes south, and then curves again and goes north all the way up hundreds and hundreds of miles. Longest river, I think, in the whole world. And yet it's got these two or three bends where it is going south, but the river is flowing north. And so if you stood at one of those curves in the river, you, would, you could stand there in certain places and say the Nile flows south, but it doesn't. The overall trend and direction of the Nile, it's always headed north, but it takes these little temporary bends and goes south, but just for a while, and then it goes back north. And it reminds me, that's a great illustration to me of the Christian life. None of us are perfect. The overall direction, momentum of a Christian is always, always, always we're going toward the Lord, but we're not perfect. And sometimes there's a bend in the road and we go south for a little while, but then the Lord gets hold of us if we're genuinely saved, and we get back in the flow, and we're going back in the direction we ought to be going. You know what? The Nile has a curve, but it's not a real big curve. It doesn't curve out there for hundreds of miles. And the Christian out of fellowship with the Lord doesn't stay out of fellowship for 20 or 30 years. We are going to all have those little curves in the road when we're not headed in the direction we know we ought to be going. But you know what? The Holy Spirit living within us, He rises up within us. He says, what you're doing is wrong. That attitude is wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. He convicts us, 
And because we're saved, we listen. Hear me. Because we're saved, we listen. And if we don't ever listen, then it calls into question whether we really do have the Holy Spirit living in us, doesn't it? What did Jesus say more than any other single phrase? You don't have ears and you don't hear. But if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you do hear. And the direction of life is going always onward toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The genuinely saved believer may have a little crooks, uh, may have a few crooks and bends, but the overall direction of his life, the trajectory of his life is going to be, he's going on with the Lord. Karl Marx wrote in some of his literature that I read many, many years ago. Do you know what Marx's dream was in founding a communist state? He kept talking over and over about founding the communist state, and he said that culture would create a new man, a new man. Marx dreamed of creating a new man. He said that the problems that people have, even in their personal lives, are caused by capitalism, by competition. If we could eliminate all that and have a pure socialist society, that we would eliminate many of the problems of greed and avarice and, and hatred and conflict that a society has. And by the way, there's pretty influential voices in America saying that today. We need to move towards socialism, and it would make for a more peaceful society. Well, Marx got his idea in a few countries, Russia and a whole bunch of others, you know, China and so on. But Marx failed in his ultimate idea, the ultimate idea through a communist society. By leveling society like that, I'll produce a new man. He didn't produce a new man. You remember the crime in the Soviet Union? You remember the constant persecution of people? In fact, it's on the rise again in China and other places like that. Socialism doesn't produce a new man. There's just one thing that can produce a new man that men have ever seen on this earth. And that leads us to our third point, and that is our position in Christ. So we have, looking back to the past, a description of the Corinthian lifestyle, a wicked lifestyle. But moving to the present, he says, oh, Christ has made a difference in you. He said, such were some of you in the past, but you're not that anymore. You are new creatures in Christ. You've been born again. You've been changed. And so now he shows us the position of the Christian. And that position, by the way, it, is the best definition, or this verse, by the way, is the best definition of a Christian, maybe in all the Bible. And what is the definition of a Christian? Well, look with me in verse 11. It doesn't say anything about what Christians do. It doesn't mention getting baptized or joining a church or reading your Bible or witnessing. None of that. What does it say a Christian is in verse 11? Now, all of those obviously are important and good things, but He's talking about the very nature. 
How that a person is changed from being a thief and an adulterer and a, a fornicator and a reviler, he's now changed to be something glorious in Jesus Christ. And he says, such were some of you, but you're washed, you're washed, you're washed. Go to Titus in your Bible. Turn to the right here, all several books, and go to the book of Titus chapter 3 with me because it's a very valuable scripture that I want you to be familiar with, Titus chapter 3, and reading there in verse number 5, or pardon me, verse 3, Titus 3 and 3. For we ourselves also, past tense, were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hate, and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, it is not by righteousness, works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Note this phrase, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, Paul here writes to them, and he says, you've been washed, past tense. You've been washed in the past. He's referring to the time of their salvation. When you came to Christ, the Bible says you were washed of your sins. Now, when we talk about washing something, my wife is washing a load of clothes in the washing machine, or I'm going and taking a bath. I'm washing my body. What do we say the agent is when we wash ourselves or wash our clothes or wash our car, whatever we're doing? The agent is always water, isn't it? But here he says the agent is, the, is regeneration. It's regeneration through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just write these verses down. I don't have time to have you look them up. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, it says that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. If you came to know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've put your faith in him, the Bible says you have been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sung the song. I didn't know the song they had scheduled to sing, but they talked about the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know why Christians talk about the blood and the wonders of the blood of Christ, it's the cleansing agent. And when we're washed in the blood, we are regenerated, which means we're given new life. We have a new birth, if you will, a renewal of everything that we are. 1 John 1 and 7 is another one of those. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, does what? It cleanses us from all sin. What is it that can clean a Corinthian up who's been involved in every kind of vile sin imaginable? What is it that can clean them up and Paul can write to them and say, such were you, but thank God you're not like that anymore. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that can do that. Turn with me to another one right quick. You just got to see some of these. There's so many of them. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. I want you to see the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash us from our sins. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Over and over and over, the Bible talks about us being washed in the blood, and so we sing that. And our hymn book is full of songs that attest to that. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners that are plunged beneath that blood, they lose all, 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 ladies and gentlemen, all their filthy stains. Amen to that? What can wash away my sin, the song says? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing else can expunge the guilt that we have on our souls except the blood. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood? Think of that phrase, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood, the preciousness of the blood of Christ? Oh, we can never quit preaching on the blood. The blood is what washes us. But notice, he goes on to another one. He says, you're washed and then you're sanctified. What does that mean? Sanctified means to be set apart for a holy purpose or a holy use, to be made holy, to be made saints. Now, I read that, and you know what your first reaction probably is today? He says you're sanctified. Sanctified means to be made holy. And I, I say, well, I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. I'm sure, I, 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 I don't know if I'm sanctified or not. Well, let me help you with what it means to be sanctified. It means that when Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, and when you accepted that as your payment for your sin, it means that God set you apart as a saint of his. You know, there are only two kinds of people in the whole world, the saints and the ain'ts. And when you trusted Christ, you're a saint. And a saint is not somebody who, you know, that you hear about St. Peter or St. Anthony or somebody like that. A saint is a blood-bought, washed, and set-apart Christian, and that happened at the cross. Let me show you again. I keep you turning in your Bible here. You'll end up knowing the books of the Bible before long if you keep coming to church here. Okay, go to Hebrews, if you will, in your Bible. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Let me show you a blessed, blessed passage of Scripture. Hebrews 10, verse 12, and then verse 14. This man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice, that's at the cross, for sin forever, not every week, he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And then he sat down, meaning he rested at the right hand of God and by that one offering on the cross, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you know when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He looks at you as being perfect. Even though you may not qualify literally, 
but we would say legally and the, uh, uh, theologically, judicially we would say, God looks at you and there's no sin on your record because your sin is under the blood of Jesus Christ. God doesn't look at you as a sinner. If you've been saved, God looks at you as one of his saints, his set-apart ones. And there's one other word here right quick, justified. What does it mean to be justified? I'll give you a definition you can remember. To be justified is that God looks at me just as if I had not sinned, just as if I had never sinned. Isn't that wonderful? Now, this is looking at it from God's standpoint. This is, here is a person who is guilty, charged with a crime. They stand before a judge, and they know that they're guilty. They know there's a penalty that has to be paid. They know that they are anything but innocent. And the judge says to them, I'm going to acquit you of the charges. An acquittal is justification. The judge says, I'm going to declare you not guilty. Now, the judge can't declare you innocent because you're not innocent. But he can declare you not guilty of the charges that are made. And that often happens in our legal system. And you say, well, that's a miscarriage of justice, though. I mean, I've sinned. I've got some of those sins there, verse 9, in my own life, or I've had them. How can God declare me to be not guilty? Well, he declares you not guilty based on the fact that Christ took your sins. He was your substitute. Your sins have already been paid in his blood at Calvary, and you're justified. So you're washed, you're set apart, and you're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what is the heart of the whole thing. Amen. I, I'm not, I don't preach for an applause, but that deserves an applause for the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Turn your Bible one more time here. I know you're in a hurry, and I'm not. But I'm, I'm going to respect your, your, your clock. But I want you to go to the book of Romans because it's just such a, oh, what a wonderful thing. Romans chapter 3. Christ paid the sin debt of the world at the cross. He satisfied God's judgment that was due to us, but he took it. Now go to some familiar passages here. Romans chapter 3. Let me tell you about justification. I'm going to tell you three things about it. You may want to mark them here. Romans 3 and 24, being justified freely, no charges to us, by his grace. Grace means I get something I don't deserve. Unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved. But God gives it to me because he loves me. I'm justified by grace. Now, go over to chapter 5 and verse 1. And therefore, being justified by faith. So I'm justified by God's grace, but I'm saved by my faith. I'm justified by faith, not works, in other words, by simply trusting 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go to chapter 5 and verse 9. And much more than being now justified by his blood. I'm justified by the blood, meaning the cross, the substitute, the sufferings of the Savior. Three points there, you see. Get hold of them. We're justified by God's grace. We're justified by faith. We're justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful today. Do you know what I like about verse 11? Now listen to me. Look up here. I don't want anybody to miss this. This is the definition of a Christian. What is a Christian? A person who has been washed, a person who has been sanctified, a person who has been justified. That's a Christian. Notice something about that. Everything about that is what he did for us. There's nothing in there about what we do for him for salvation. It's all of grace, isn't it? Nothing that I have to do to be saved. The price is paid. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant the plan of salvation is finished. Sin was paid for. If you receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, you will be saved. Well, that's, that's wonderful, wonderful stuff the Bible reveals to us here. The New Testament is full of instruction about Christian duties and Christian responsibilities. In other places, they're all revealed to us. But salvation is not about anything we do. Get hold of that. I pause. Salvation is not about anything you do. It's about what has been done for you. And will you take it by faith? Will you stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, and bow your heads in prayer? has walked beside me The winter storms make way for spring In every season from where I'm standing I see the evidence of your goodness all
I want to remind all of you that Easter is coming up and let's see the date is April the 9th 
and the services at 10.30 in the morning. We have some glorious, victorious, exciting Easter music, and then I'll be preaching on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're making plans right now to be with us. That's April 9, and the time is 10.30 a.m. in the morning. Join us for our great Easter service that day.